Hi, I'm David Huntley. I'm going to be uh, reading the scripture for this morning from Galatians 4, 8 to 31 and verse five, chapter 5, verse 1. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone. Because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh 
persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave's woman's, slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Barbara Rue. I'm a deacon here at College Church, and I'm blessed to be on part of on the team that's giving Pastor Bill a sabbatical rest. I'm a Bible study teacher by training, not a preacher, so bear with me as I share a message with you from my teacher perspective. We are in the midst of a sermon series on the book of Galatians. Today, zeroing in on chapter four. And you will see that I make some of the same exact points that others have in this series already. My prayer is that you will be blessed as each one of us hits the main themes of this book from a different perspective. So while I was reading the passage um, that you just heard, long passage, I had a bit of a flashback. I remember distinctly standing at a bus stop in the Boston area some 35 years ago. A real personable young woman struck up a conversation with me. I hadn't been in Boston that long and this contradicted my stereotype of New England being a cold place. Well, the woman ended up um, getting to know me, talking with me for a while, and um, then she invited me to Bible study. Joe Puglia actually also just shared about being invited to a Bible study two weeks ago. For me, I thought, that sounds really cool. I've just moved here. I don't know hardly anybody. I used to be big time into Bible study, having attended a Christian group at my previous college. It was convenient and this gal seemed like a very friendly person. So I said, sure, let me know when and where it meets. When I went to the Bible study, I was struck at the group's warm hospitality. I enjoyed the Bible study, great questions, great discussion, and of course, good food. <clears throat> and I came to find out that the house that they were living in which had a whole bunch of young adults, they were all from the same church. Not surprisingly, they invited me to church. So several weeks later, I visited. Church was unlike anything I had experienced before. No pews, no steeple, no organ. Well, I guess we don't have those either. But it, back then, that was actually a new and different thing for me. Churches were supposed to have steeples. At any rate, um, it was a new and different experience. That week, they had baptisms, and I got the sense that they baptized frequently. But as they introduced the baptisms, I had one of those moments where you kind of shake your head and rub your ear, like, did I hear that right? 
<clears throat> I don't remember their exact words, but I distinctly remember them implying that baptism was required for salvation and that one needed to be baptized in their church in order to be saved. You needed to be baptized in their church. That didn't seem quite right. I value baptism and the, fact, and the act of publicly declaring one's faith in Christ, but their emphasis seemed off. And then as I got to know some of the people in the group, I began to realize that they were told um, to only have roommates from their church. They were told how much to give and how much money, uh, where to spend their time, even who to date. I headed for the exit door before I got entrenched. I wasn't surprised when I read several months later an article in the Boston Globe exploring whether this particular group was a cult. Somehow, this well-meaning church was putting on more requirements than was necessary, and the gospel message was getting lost. It was getting lost in the rules one had to follow. It was not too unlike what was going on with the Galatians, as Paul relays in today's passage. Paul pours out his heart, appealing to the Galatians not to slip into a mentality where one needs to adopt all of the Jewish laws and essentially become Jewish in order to be acceptable to God. In fact, he says, those ways are like slavery. So let me tease out what Paul is saying in today's passage, and we'll go, this, uh, go through this looking at Paul's appeal. Then I'm going to look at an, an allegory illustrating this appeal, and then I'll look at the application. What does this passage mean to me? How can I apply it? So an appeal, an allegory, and the application. So let's start with the appeal. Paul makes this appeal with some contrasts. The first contrast that Paul picks up on here is the contrast between their pre-Christian status and their status as believers in Christ. In other words, between before they knew God and knowing him through Christ. Between a time when they weren't in God's family to when they were adopted children of his. Formerly, in their old life, they were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Okay? Basically, as Michael Jones said last week, there were a variety of pagan idol-worshipping options for those in the Greco-Roman culture. Paul provides no details, but he's saying that following Christ meant breaking completely with the idolatrous religion and false gods of the surrounding culture. They were non-gods, sham gods, so-called gods that had nothing of the divine about them. And Paul is saying that these gods enslaved them. That was true of the pagan Gentiles of Paul's day, but in another sense, it is true for anyone before they know God. They, in a sense, are enslaved. Some people might think their life before knowing God was quite free. They might characterize it more like an eat, drink, and marry uh, mentality, which doesn't seem like enslavement at all. But even those things can enslave money, sex, 
addictions, having the best car, house, outfit, being popular, being the best at your sport, your hobby, your job, what's ever on your screen, these things can enslave us. We seek more of them and we become disappointed when we don't achieve or get the things that we value. As Tim Keller says, if anything but Jesus is a requirement for being happy or worthy, that thing will become your slave master. Without the gospel, we must be under the slavery of an idol. So Paul's first contrast uh, here is between the enslaved life before knowing God through Christ and life knowing him. The second contrast is directly related to his appeal, which we've heard throughout the sermon series, his warning. And this is the whole point of, the, of Galatians. The Galatians were being influenced they were being influenced by a bunch of false teachers who said that the Galatian believers needed to also adopt all of what we know of as the Old Testament Mosaic law in order to be acceptable to God. And Paul says flatly, no. He is saying that earning one's own salvation through rigorous religious rule following is just as much enslavement as idols enslavement to idols as paganism. You were enslaved before, and now, perhaps in a slightly different way, you will be enslaved again. Terry Johnson said, slavery provides womb-to-tomb security. Slavery was safe. Freedom was difficult. Slavery meant that all they had to do was work the system, check the boxes, Freedom meant examining one's heart and working on a relationship. We have to watch it. We can become enslaved if we worship anything other than Jesus Christ. You know, Paul really makes a passionate appeal here. This is an earnest, urgent, passionate appeal. He says, I fear for you, I plead with you, I am perplexed about you, and I am again in the pains of childbirth over you. Don't you like when a guy says that? Uh, Paul is frustrated and exasperated, but at the same time you sense his love and care. Three times he calls them brothers, one time he calls them my dear children, he seems to be like a parent of an adolescent that got off track. Maybe you can think of a time when you saw a loved one get off track. You want so earnestly to pull them back. That's what Paul's doing here. He says, how did you get off track? Do you want to go back to being enslaved by these things? Have I now become an enemy to you for telling you the truth? Oh, how I wish I could be with you. You just feel his energy as he makes his appeal to these brothers that he loves to not be enslaved again. Next, Paul continues with his, uh, his appeal with, by presenting an allegory, a story with a symbolic parallel meaning. 
The cool thing about this story is that it makes a point, but at the same time throws in a total reversal of the Judaic perspective on an old familiar story. The story comes from Genesis, chapters 16 to 21. The Lord had promised Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. So Abraham and Sarah wait and wait for a baby. By this time, they're old, really old, way past the years of childbearing. So Sarah, taking matters into her own hands and leading, leaning on a cultural practice that may have been happening in that day, suggested to Abraham that he get himself a surrogate, kind of, namely her slave Hagar. So Abraham agreed. Hagar conceived and bore a son, Ishmael. <clears throat> so Ishmael was born, but... In time, over a decade later, surprise, it's a boy. Sarah became pregnant and miraculously bore a son in her old age. This was the son God had promised, <clears throat> Isaac. So we have two mothers and two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, a son of slavery and a son of freedom. And from them come two line, uh, lines of descendants. The descendants of Ishmael, the one born a, a, according to the flesh, were non-Jews. We could consider them Gentiles. The descendants of Isaac, the one born of promise, were regarded as God's chosen people. God's chosen people that, whose purpose is to bless the whole world. <clears throat> They were the ones who would have the law given to them at Mount Sinai, have the sacrificial system established uh, at the temple in Jerusalem, hear from the prophets, and receive the promise of the Messiah who would come to save the whole world. And the Jews got that, pretty much. The Jews knew that they were the children of Abraham descended through Isaac, and the false teachers, Jewish believers, were telling the Gentile Galatian believers just this, that to be acceptable to God, they needed to become Jewish by following the law. But here's where Paul flips the script, where Paul's allegory takes a total reversal. He associates the slave woman and her son with Mount Sinai and the present Jerusalem, clearly associating the Jews or people under the law from Mount Sinai with the slave woman. We could try to tease out the connection between Hagar and Mount Sinai and is there a relationship, but this is an allegory and he's using it to illustrate one point. The point Paul is making is that the Jews, just like genetically passed down DNA, are looking more like Hagar. Hagar was a slave and the Jews are looking more like, the, like a person who is enslaved. The law was enslaving them. But according to Paul in this allegory, Abraham's spiritual descendants, those who by faith believe in Jesus Christ for salvation are free under the law. 
Those who follow Christ belonged to the Jerusalem above, the free new Jerusalem. The Gentile believers are children of God. They were adopted into the family. And if they buy into the, the former Jewish rules, they are looking more like children of slavery. This must have been shocking to hear if you were a Jew. Can you imagine how you would have felt if you were a Jewish rule-following believer hearing what Paul had to say? I might not have been too happy to hear that message, but it's a message they needed to hear. We know after a long wait, Sarah was blessed with the promised child. Paul basically says, rejoice, barren woman who bears no children, because the children of the barren one surpass the woman of the, with the husband. They are more numerous than the stars in the sky. Paul used this verse, that was my version of that verse, Isaiah 54.1, a verse that celebrates God's restoration of Jerusalem after the exile, to both look back at how God fulfilled this for Sarah and apply it to the Galatians, reminding them that they were among Sarah's children. They were adopted children. Paul says, isn't it clear, friends, that you, like Isaac, are children of the promise? You don't need extra laws or to be Jewish to, be, to have a relationship with God. So expel the slave woman. Get rid of those who are preaching a different gospel. But now I want to think about the application. What does this mean for me? I don't have to worry about people asking me or telling me that I need to be Jewish. But I think Paul is saying some things here that are foundational for our walk today. The first point I'm, going, I'm reminded of, and this is a point underlying this story, is that people need the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And I just want to do a little uh, commercial break just to say, I don't know if you ever go back and listen to old sermons, but um, the sermons from May 1st and May 8th, uh, Michael Jones and Jasmine both uh, gave really good full descriptions of what the gospel means. So you could go back and listen to those. This was Paul's first message when he first came to the Galatians with some unnamed illness that unexpectedly leaves Paul in the Galatians' care. There are all sorts of theories about uh, what, ail what the ailment was, but I like it being undisclosed so we can apply it more broadly. Paul, when he first met the Galatians, experienced a curveball, and, dis and despite the circumstances, he shared the gospel message. Life has its way of throwing us curveballs. And despite and maybe even because of those curveballs, we can share the gospel message. I am amazed at those stories where a person of faith ends up in the hospital or gets a diagnosis or misses a flight, and they end up sharing their gospel story in spite of or because of it. There are even some of those stories right here at College Church. But I had to ask myself when I experience a challenge, and maybe like Paul, I'm e I even become a burden to someone else because of that challenge, 
Do I still share and live out my gospel story? What about if I hear the word cancer or your COVID test is positive or any of the other curveballs that life throws at us? Do I take the opportunity to point others to Jesus by my life and my words? People need the gospel. And we need to share our gospel stories. The Galatians had received Paul warmly and had been eager to receive this message about Jesus. This may be a message we take for granted, but I need to be reminded of it. People need the gospel. This is a broken world that needs to know Jesus and what he has done for us. And the second thing, and this is really Paul's emphasis here, is that people need to not lose sight of the gospel. The analogy that came to mind when I was thinking of this is hiking. And I could be accused of using that illustration for a lot of things because I love to hike. I love to hike in the woods and especially with others. Well, sometimes when I've been hiking, I've lost my way. Often it was my own fault. But I can think of one time when I was hiking with friends, reliable hikers who I've hiked with countless times. I was in the rear and admittedly I, was paying, I wasn't paying close attention to the landmarks along the trail because I was following my friends. And of course, they know where they're going. You can see where I'm going with this. We ended up lost, very lost. <clears throat> and uh, in fact, we, it, it took us a real long time to get back. With my eyes on my friends instead of on the landmarks on the trail, I found myself off course. That's kind of like the Galatians who were led astray by the false teachers. They were following the Jewish Christians, the guys that really should know their stuff, but it led them off course. The thing I found unsettling about this is how subtle it is to get off track. And you don't even realize it at first. That can happen following others, or even if I'm walking on the path alone and I just take my eyes off the blazes along the trail. Without being careful, you may be taking one step at a time in the wrong direction. And I couldn't help to think of false narratives that come to us from what we think are reliable sources, even Christian sources, that can lead us off course some of these might be extra stuff added on to the gospel message, sort of like what I heard at that church I visited oh, oh so many years ago. A message like, if you are a real Christian, then you would do such and such. And some might be other non-gospel mantras that seep into our lives and get us off course by crowding out the one true gospel. Voices in our culture seem to amplify their message, and we need to be careful about the non-gods, the sham gods, that are seeping into our lives. Double-check the narratives that are seeping into your life. 
Paul offers some tough love here and says, cast out the slave woman. Cast off that which is enslaving you, the voices that are leading your heart down the wrong path. For freedom, Christ has set us free. How good to hear this on Juneteenth. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Do not lose sight of the gospel. On July 22, 2013, Geraldine Largay stepped off the Appalachian Trail to go to the bathroom. She lost her way. Her body was found two years later, only two miles from the trail. It was a tragic story, but it reminded me how easy it is to lose sight of the trail and how difficult it might be to get back on track. Paul's saying essentially this to the Galatians, do not lose sight of the gospel and get rid of anything that, you, that will pull you away. Are there voices that are pulling you away from the gospel? Consider how you can stay on the trail. What are the blazes along the trail that we should be looking at? Do not lose sight of the gospel. As we head to communion, consider ways that you can keep the gospel message front and center in your life and guiding your path. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for leading our way. Thank you for giving us blazes. Help us to see those blazes and to not lose sight of the gospel. Amen. Today we're going to celebrate communion. Uh, so I'm going to invite the communion servants to come forward. Many of you have participated in communion hundreds, maybe even thousands of times. Uh, for some of you, this might be newer. But it's always good to stop and ask ourselves, what is this? What are we doing? Why are we celebrating this? And what's the purpose behind it? What is its meaning? So that it doesn't just become rote. As I thought about what's behind it, I've, I've shared this um, before with others and also with my children, but uh, there's actually a lot of history behind communion. And we sometimes start with Jesus on the night before he was going to go to the cross when he takes the bread and the cup. And we forget that there's a lot of history behind that. And I thought about this weekend being a celebration of, of Juneteenth, and I thought about the sermon that was going to be preached and just the, the whole concepts of freedom from slavery. And sometimes we miss these pictures that are part of the Lord's Supper, of the communion that we take. Because the communion is rooted in the Passover celebration that the Jewish people celebrated for hundreds of years. And it's rooted in that celebration because it was the night before 